Welcome to Radio Free Rabbi with Rabbi Joshua Aronson of Temple Judea in Tarzana, California. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today, this great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is Fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It's a famous phrase, and it's a phrase from Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first inaugural address. FDR was inaugurated on March 4th, 1933, and his first inauguration was the final inauguration on a March 4th. In January of 1933, just a few months, barely two months, before FDR himself was inaugurated, the 20th Amendment of the Constitution was passed, and it fixed the date of a presidential inauguration at noon on January 20th, and the start of Congress at noon on January 3rd. FDR was the first president to be inaugurated on a January 20th, and in the case of FDR, that would make it January 20th, 1937. Roosevelt was inaugurated at a profoundly consequential moment in history. In January of 1933, Adolf Hitler was appointed as Chancellor of Germany. The Reichstag fire was on February 27th, and on February 28th, the Reichstag fire decree was passed, and that largely suspended civil rights in Germany. One day after Roosevelt's inauguration, on March 5th, there's a federal election in Germany, and the National Socialist Party receives almost 44% of the vote. Just coincidentally, by dint of the calendar, my father of blessed memory was born on that day, March 5th, 1933, the day after Roosevelt was inaugurated for his first term. While the clouds of war gathered over Europe, Roosevelt's primary concern was leading America out of a depression the likes of which had not been seen in this country, well, until now. More than 15 million people were out of work, 20% of the population. Thousands upon thousands of banks closed or were in the process of closing. Families lost farms. And more than anything else, Americans were lost, hopeless and afraid. And in the midst of this maelstrom, Franklin Delano Roosevelt stepped to the microphone and delivered what has become one of the most important and inspirational inaugural addresses in American history. The topic for this podcast was inspired by a picture I saw recently of a lone woman. 
She was at her sewing machine in her home, sewing a mask to wear in the midst of the COVID-19 epidemic. I did not see that as an inspirational picture. In fact, I thought to myself, is this what we have fallen to? Is this what our country is relying upon to get us out of this situation? Is this the same country of Willow Run? Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Willow Run, it was built in Michigan for the war effort, World War II. Henry Ford, that Henry Ford, him of anti-Semitic fame or infamy, built Willow Run on property he owned. The federal government contributed $200 million to the project and promised to buy all the planes it produced. It opened in 1941 and within the span of about five years produced 9,000 B-24 Liberators, one of the two main planes used in World War II by American forces. Remember Rosie the Riveter? She was a Riveter named Rose at Willow Run. Or at least that's one of the stories. But she certainly wasn't riveting away by herself in her home. She was the symbol of American ingenuity and sacrifice at a moment in U.S. history that called for both. Now, FDR didn't know about Willow Run or Rosie the Riveter when he stepped to the microphone on March 4th, 1933. But he knew what America needed. Hope inspiration, vision, and leadership. And beginning with that speech and continuing with many other speeches, including his fireside chats, that's precisely what Roosevelt offered to an America parched for leadership. The importance of leadership cannot be overrated. Nothing important, nothing consequential, nothing enduring happens without leadership. The Torah recognized this, the leadership of Moses and Joshua was crucial to the exodus and the conquest of the promised land. Yet true leaders are few and far between. Great leaders emerge at the intersection of history and opportunity. The truly great are generally a odd or unusual combination of ego, intelligence, personal charisma, and above all, a vision of the greater good. Now, great leaders are by nature opportunists and in the business of self-aggrandizement, but the truly great never sacrifice the greater good at the altar of narcissism. The current lack of leadership, not only in the United States, but around the world, is not merely a reflection of the dearth of candidates. I'm not sure the culture of the moment would embrace a leader in the mold of FDR, Society in 2020 seems to magnify every flaw and every mistake as if somehow some perfect leader exists. Neither Moses nor FDR nor any other great leader was or is perfect. They all tend to be flawed and in some cases deeply flawed individuals. Sexual peccadilloes, extremist views, a certain coarseness, a stubbornness, are more commonly than not part of the elixir of leadership. And for this reason, given the scrutiny of our media today, we churn out our leaders faster than we can create them. Now, when I think of great leaders, I often turn to one of my heroes, Winston Churchill. The reason Churchill is one of my heroes is that 
he was as often as not a failure. And I'm particularly good at being a failure, or at failing at least. Now, when we think of Churchill as the towering prime minister of England during World War II, we often forget that Churchill rose to the prime ministership as the last act of a long career that ultimately spanned about 50 years. Churchill spent the 10 years prior to assuming the prime ministership in what all Churchillian scholars call his wilderness years. He was essentially out of the government. Yet the confluence of opportunity and history called him to duty, and Britain was certainly better off for it. Like FDR, Churchill entered office at a most inauspicious time. He was asked to form a government by George IV, he of the King's Speech fame, and the father of the current Queen of England. George IV and Churchill traveled in the same circles as young men, but the king did not particularly like Churchill, and asking him to form a government was, as we say today, awkward. Churchill assumed the role of prime minister in early May 1940, just as France was falling to the Nazis and just as the British army was coming to the realization that they were going to face a debacle at Dunkirk. Just weeks after assuming the office, Churchill ordered the evacuation of the British expeditionary forces, and by June 4th, barely one month after taking office, the operation was complete. More than 300,000 soldiers were saved. Dunkirk marked a turning point in the war in many ways. Under Churchill's leadership, Britain vastly improved its ability to wage war, and in the following 18 months, the tide of war slowly began to turn, or at least signs of the turn began to emerge. But it was a dark time in the history of Great Britain. Now, Churchill was a graduate of the Harrow School. In fact, Churchill was and remains the school's most famous alumnus. And by the way, that's not an insignificant list. It includes seven prime ministers of England and the first prime minister of India, Nehru. Also, it was a school that was particularly friendly and kind to Jews. And not incidentally, Churchill was a Judeophile for his entire life. Now, the Harrow School often invited Churchill to speak to the students, even when he was prime minister, and even in the midst of leading Britain through World War II. Churchill always took the time to speak to the boys, and it was all boys. Thus it was on October 29, 1941, that Churchill once again rose to address the boys. The outcome of the war was still in some doubt, Britain and ultimately the United States faced difficult days, but the horizon of a victory could be seen, and in this context, Churchill offered what is, in my opinion, his most inspirational speech, and that's saying a lot for a Churchill speech. This is the speech known as the Never Give In speech. Surely in this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. 
Although this is the most well-known part of the speech, it's the conclusion of the speech that I come back to again and again as an inspiration for tough times. Now, to fully understand the speech, you need to know that the Harrovians, which is the name for a student at the Harrow School, or the students at the Harrow School, rewrote the school anthem when Churchill was elected prime minister in order to honor him. And that school anthem included a line about darker days. In the course of his speech, Churchill recounts that he asked the head of school for permission to change one word, one word, in the anthem, the word from darker to sterner. And in doing so, set for the task of the citizens of the UK, the marker to continue their great sacrifice for the sake of God and country. Do not let us speak of darker days. Let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest days our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our stations, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. I think of these words now as our world confronts what will likely be our world war and I wish, no, no, actually I pray for the leadership of an FDR or a Churchill to lead us through these sterner days. This has been Radio Free Rabbi with Rabbi Joshua Aronson of Temple Judea in Tarzana, California. Produced and edited by Dan Leonard.